Good morning. Is everybody having a good Memorial Day weekend so far? <laughs> That's right. All right, so we got that up. All right, well, let's pray before we get started here. So, Father, I just lift this time to you. Lord, I pray that uh, your words would come through my mouth, that I would speak only the truth as you see it, the unfailing truth, and that all words, good or otherwise, would always, always be spoken in love. So just give you thanks, Father, and ask all this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, that's, that seems kind of loud. Anyway, <laughs> I felt like I kind of needed a little help with the, um, the introduction to today's message. So I enlisted someone to, uh, to help me out. So if you just turn your attention to the monitors. And I will say that if during this introduction you find it difficult to remain seated, um, as they say on the uh, airlines, you are free to move about the room. There we go.
All right, could anybody but Pharrell pull off a hat, bow tie, and shorts? He somehow makes it work, though. It looks good on him. It would look ridiculous on me. Well, that's true. All right, well, if you kind of hadn't figured this out, why is my little clicker not clicking today? No, that's, there we go, that's good. All right, um, we're going to spend the next 10 weeks exploring Paul's letter to the church at Philippi. Now, um, the overwhelming occurrence of the word group joy, so joy, rejoice, all of its variations in the letter, has led to Philippians being known as the epistle of joy. Now, I know the title of that song we just heard is Happy. But I do think Pharrell just as easily could have called it joyful. And the reason I think this is true is actually in the song's second verse. Here come bad news, talking this and that. Well, give me all you've got. Don't hold it back. Well, I should probably warn you, I'll be just fine. No offense to you. Don't waste your time. Now, we're going to get into how that relates to joy in just a bit. But first, I want to read the first 11 verses of chapter 1, which is our topic for today. All right? So if you have a Bible and you want to follow along or an app, we're in the <clears throat> Paul's letter to the Philippians, chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. All right, so let's start. This is from the New Living Translation. This letter is from Paul and Timothy, slaves of Christ Jesus. I am writing to all of God's holy people in Philippi who belong to Christ Jesus, including the church leaders and deacons. Well, it's a good thing he included them. I'm glad they belong to Christ Jesus. May God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. Every time I think of you, I give thanks to my God. Whenever I pray, I make my requests for all of you with joy. For you have been my partners in spreading the good news about Christ from the time you first heard it until now. And I am certain that God who began the good work within you will continue his work until it is finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. So it is right that I should feel as I do about all of you. For you have a special place in my heart. You share with me the special favor of God, both in my imprisonment and in defending and confirming the truth of the good news. God knows how much I love you and long for you with the tender compassion of Christ Jesus. I pray that your love will overflow more and more and that you will keep on growing in knowledge and understanding. For I want you to understand what really matters so that you may live pure and blameless lives until the day of Christ's return. May you always be filled with the fruit of your salvation, the righteous character produced in your life by Jesus Christ. For this will bring much glory and praise to God. All right, so what's Paul going after here? What's kind of the main idea in this first, the first part of this letter? Well, I think it's this. God wants your hearts to be filled with joy. God wants your hearts to be filled with joy, just as 
Paul's was. But how does that happen? How can we get, how can our hearts be filled with joy? Well, three reasons, I think. First of one, which is, your hearts can be filled with joy when you understand that joy comes from relationship, not from circumstances. We take this from verses 4 and 5, which said, again, whenever I pray, I make my requests for all of you with joy. For you have been my partners in spreading the good news about Christ from the time you first heard it until now. So when Paul is praying for the church at Philippi, he thanks God for them, and he says he prayed with joy. Now, as I said, this is the first time, if I remember the statistics correctly, there's 104 verses in the book of Philippians, the the letter. There are 14 or 16 references to joy within those, so that's a fairly high percentage, okay? So he uses that, that word a lot in this letter. And the thing is, if you think about it, coming from an itinerant preacher who is imprisoned for his faith, wouldn't joy be probably the last thing you would expect him to say or him to talk about? But see, Paul had this joy despite his imprisonment and the fact that there was no set decision on his case. His life was literally on the line here. And yet he still is able to rejoice and encourage others. See, joy is, or at least it should be, a central part of our spiritual salvation and our personal relationship with Jesus Christ. True Christian joy reflects an inner peace and delight in God the Father, in the Lord Jesus Christ, and in the Holy Spirit. It's the blessing that flows from our relationship with all of them. Joy is deeper than emotional happiness because emotional happiness often depends on our outward circumstances. That's why I mentioned the song's second verse. It says essentially, give me, come on, give me all the bad news you got because it's not going to affect me. That's joy. See, that's not just happiness, that's joy. Now how can someone say that? Well, I think it's because true Christian joy, exactly the way love is, is not a feeling. Joy is an activity. A standard dictionary equates joy with happiness. But in Scripture, the two words are very distinct. For example, when life is going well, we may may feel happy. But when hard times come, we lose that feeling, and we become, become unhappy or even sad. True joy, however, rises above those rolling waves of circumstance on your own plane of experience, whatever that is. And so we can be joyful even when events are not going our way. If you want to think about it this way, joy basically um, reflects a vertical perspective. We're focusing on God. And so we can be joyful in our trials when we know that God is in control. True joy is found only in a relationship with Jesus. Joy is the gladdening of our hearts that comes from knowing that Christ is Lord. The feeling of relief because we're released from sin. It's the inner peace and tranquility that we have because we know that the final outcome of our lives and we know what it's going to be 
And we have the assurance that God is in us and in every circumstance. Paul, like the psalmists over and over again, tell us to rejoice in the Lord. Action. Rejoice in the Lord. The final words that he spoke to his disciples, Jesus promised this. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may remain in you, and that your joy may be full. Jesus said this as he was facing the cross. So clearly for Jesus and for Paul in prison with his life on the line, joy was very separate from their circumstances. Joy is how believers who know Jesus and whose futures are guaranteed by Jesus respond in the context of present difficulties. Not because they like to suffer, but because their joy is in the Lord. Whatever else, life in Christ is a life of joy. And to miss this point is to miss the point of Philippians altogether. And to miss the point of Philippians is to miss out on an essential quality of the Christian life. Joy comes from relationship, not circumstance. Number two, God fills your hearts with joy when you understand that he will begin what he started. And that comes from verse 6 where it says, And I am certain that God who began the good work within you will continue his work until it is finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. Now, the word began in verse 6 carries the meaning of to inaugurate, okay? And the, term, the, the tense, the verb tense that Paul is using points to a very decisive and very deliberate act, okay? In other words, God's actions weren't impulsive, and they weren't imperfect. Here was something that was planned and executed to perfection. The Philippian woman Lydia exactly illustrates this inauguration of the good work. When Paul was at Philippi, his message primarily focused on salvation. And if you remember the words that he preached to the jailer, um, you can be fairly certain, I think, that he probably said those words to other people too. That he said them to Lydia and to the other women that were gathered at the place of prayer. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Remember, that's what he said to the jailer. But when that same story is told in the book of Acts, it's cast not in terms of the faith that Lydia exercised. Rather, it says, the Lord opened her heart to give heed to what was said by Paul. It was God that began the good work. This is the true inner story of every conversion. It's a work of God originating before the foundation of the world when he chose us in Jesus. You know, if you really think about it, salvation would be a wretchedly unsure thing if it had no other foundation than my having chosen Jesus. Our human will blows hot and cold. It's firm one minute, it's unstable the next, it has fits and starts, it offers no security, nothing lasting. But it's the will of God that's the 
foundation, the groundwork of salvation. No one would be saved had not the Lord been moved by his own spontaneous and completely unexplainable love to choose his people before the world was, and then at the decisive moment to open our hearts to hear, understand, and accept the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. This then is our assurance. God has willed my salvation. Secondly, he who has inaugurated the Christian experience wants to continue it. He will bring it to completion, or you could say it, will evermore put his finishing touches to it. God never gives up. There's no more dramatic elaboration of this truth in the whole of Scripture than Ezekiel chapter 20. Now, it's 49 verses, so permit me to summarize. You can read it for yourself at home if you wish. But Ezekiel, in his prophetic um, speaking, does not spare Israel's rebellion against God. He points out it's been real, it's been dreadful, and it's made their history twisted and torturous. Three times, verses 8, 13, and 21, the bell of condemnation rings. It says, but they rebelled. Four times, the bell of assurance rings. In verses 9, 14, 22, and 44, I acted for the sake of my name. He would not let his people go. He was, moved, he was moved by impulses and by motives that are walked within his very nature. It was he who chose Israel, and he pledges to be faithful to that choice until the day when all the house of Israel, all of them, will serve him on his holy mountain. He will never desert his declared intention to have his people for himself. And we're really the true inheritors of Ezekiel's promises. So it's with confidence that we can say that he will go on perfecting us. The fact that we shall continue in grace is as certain as the fact that God, who cannot lie, will go on working in us. The assurance that God gives us not only guarantees the outcome, it guarantees as well every experience of every day. For in all things, God is putting on the finishing touches. Good news, bad news, difficulty, blessing, unexpected happiness, unexpected trouble, it all has a purpose. Thirdly, the outcome is guaranteed. God is working to a schedule, and the day of Jesus Christ is fixed in God the Father's day planner. Or his iPhone, I guess, if he's into technology. <laughs> it's as if he's under contract to himself and his son. The day will come, and everything and everyone will be ready in the right time for it. There will be no last-minute rush, no botching up, nothing that will just do it for now. Strikes will not delay it, and carelessness will not mar it. The Father has weighed up the merits of his Son in the proper response to his work at Calvary, and nothing will suffice but that he should bring his Son out from the invisible glories of heaven 
and show him publicly to a wondering and worshiping world. For his own glory, the Father must one day see every knee bow to Jesus and hear every tongue acknowledge his lordship. And our salvation is as assured as that coming day. For it is we, the saints, the believers, the objects of his good work who must be made ready for his coming on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled in all who have believed. There is confidence. Our salvation can no more be forfeited than the Father can break his pledged word to glorify his Son. No wonder that Paul uses such powerful language, the language of a man who has zero doubt. I am sure the perseverance of the saints rests on the perseverance of God with the saints. The confidence that Paul has throughout this letter is that God himself is a finisher as well as a beginner. The particular work which he has begun, he will finish. And it's the work of grace through the gospel in the hearts and lives of all of the Philippian Christians. And verse 6 kind of just sums it up as sort of a motto or a theme for the whole letter. The God who began a good work in you will complete it by the day of King Jesus. And if thinking about that doesn't give you joy, then maybe you don't understand what Jesus did as well as you thought you did. And then finally, God will fill your hearts with happiness when you can discern what it is that really matters. Verse 10 says, For I want you to understand what really matters, so that you may live pure and blameless lives until the day of Christ's return. See, discernment here is the ability to discriminate or to examine or test things that differ. And, you know, as mature Christians, one would hope that our abilities to make choices should improve. We're to base our decisions on Scripture so that the best way is always selected. And the best way, best way is both moral and ethical before God. So when this pattern is observed, our lives are pure and blameless. Now, these words do not mean perfect or sinless. Okay? They refer to our motives. And so Paul prays that these Christians would develop a genuine lifestyle without hypocrisy before God and men. The day of Christ refers to this time when Christ will come for all the true believers, his church. And since we don't know when that event's going to occur, it's an incentive for living a pure and blameless lifestyle so that we may be unashamed before Christ should he choose to come at a time when we least expect. And trust me, he will come at a time when we least expect. We're to be ready to face him at all times. So this means not merely choosing things that are not bad, but choosing the best things from among those that are good. The things of more advanced excellence. Now the Philippians lived, as we do, in a world where several moral issues were blurred and distorted. 
And it was often hard to see what was the right thing to do. Paul longs to see them grow in telling the difference between good and evil. When so often they will appear maybe kind of as shades of gray initially. So that way, he says, we will approach the coming day of the Lord, the, great, the king's great day with confidence. Because God will be transforming their whole lives into a holiness that goes beyond even the ritual purity demanded of the priests in the temple. This letter has quite a lot to say about the coming day, and the main thing to say is that Christians can look forward to it with confidence and with joy. came across a story that uh, noted pastor and author Max Lucado related one time that I thought was kind of interesting. He says this, For years I was an avid cyclist. I loved it. I was one of those guys with the tight shorts and helmet. I eventually got to the point where I competed in events. A guy in my church offered to teach me a lot more about cycling. So I bought a bike and some clip-in shoes and spandex, and I went out, and I loved it. But then he started saying that I needed to get some gadgets. You know, everything from a speedometer to a monitor for my pulse rate to a device to read the incline of a hill. I had gauges on my gauges. Then there was the music. My cycling expert friend told me, you'll bike better if you listen to some hard rock. So I did, and all of a sudden, I was a serious biker. One day, lo and behold, I wrecked my bike. And I had to borrow a friend's bike, one that had no gadgets on it at all. And for whatever reason, I didn't take any music with me on my ride. And I was surprised how much I enjoyed that ride. It was delightful, just delightful. I was riding for the pure joy of riding. I found in church work that I can do that too. I can become so budget conscious, so numbers conscious, so growth conscious. So here I am, 62 years old. I think I'm enjoying ministry more because I'm focusing on the gauges less. I'm more at peace. And I think the same thing can happen in our everyday life as well. So I have a question for you. Are you focusing on life's gauges so much that you have lost sight of the joy of the Lord? I'm talking about the gauges of worldly success. Money, achievement, promotions, relationships, the approval of others, social media presence. Maybe it's time to become more cross-eyed. Now, what do I mean by that? It's a shorthand reference to Hebrews 12.2, which says this, Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him, that's you, endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Don't let your focus on life's gauges rob you of the joy of knowing Christ or keep you from growing closer to him. Mm 
Run with endurance the race that has been set before you. Do not lose heart. Do not grow weary. Just get more cross-eyed. Then, I think, you will be able to say, well, here come bad news, talking this and that. Well, give me all you got. Don't hold it back. I should probably warn you, I'll be just fine. No offense to you, don't waste your time. Because I'm joyful. Clap along if you feel like a room without a roof. Clap along if you feel like joyfulness is the truth. Clap along if you know what joyfulness is to you. Clap along if you feel like that's what you want to do. Amen. Now, if you don't have that joy, but you would like it, and it's because you've never decided to follow Jesus, to become his disciple, to make him the center part of your life, then we're going to take care of that right now. So if you want to, if you've never done this before, or if you just want to renew your commitment, then just say this prayer. I'm going to read it out loud. You can just say it silently. You can just agree with me, however um, you want it to be between you and God. But it goes like this. Oh, God, I am a sinner. I'm sorry for my sins. I'm willing to turn from my sins. I believe Jesus Christ is your son. I believe that he died for my sins and that you raised him to eternal life. I right now receive Jesus as my Savior. I receive him as my Lord. From this moment on, I want to follow him in the fellowship of the church. Guide my life and help me to do your will. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Now, as we do, we don't want to embarrass anybody, but we want to celebrate. So is there anybody here that would like to acknowledge that they prayed that prayer for the first time today? All right, good. You're all believers. Let's talk about tithing. <laughs> oh, God. Didn't, uh, that just was a spur of the moment sort of thing so so if I could have my prayer folks come up and uh, be available to pray maybe we'll talk about tithing some other time Well, if you're all believers, then you should all believe in the power of prayer. Right? We believe in the power of prayer very strongly here. We believe that the power of prayer can do miraculous things. And we're getting ready to um, produce some little videos that 
we're going to show as testimonies to what prayer has been able to accomplish in people's lives here. Really as a means of um, just building faith, right? Nothing builds faith like hearing what God has done. I want you to make a testimony video. And I want you to make it because you come up for prayer today and something miraculous happens. God's still in that business, by the way. That didn't stop thousands of years ago. So if you need prayer for something today, whether it's a physical need, a healing that you have, that you, that you need God to do for you, whether it's just simply a decision that you're trying to make and you need some godly wisdom, whatever the situation is, these folks that, that are around the uh, outskirts of the church were, are more than willing to come and pray for you. So just come and see one of them. We're going to pray a blessing here, and then at that point, kind of turn the service over to to, uh, to God. He's free in this moment or these moments to do whatever He chooses to do. And so you're welcome to stick around, to worship, to get prayer. If you need to go, that's that's okay too. So let's pray this blessing and prayer than just come and see these folks. So Father, I thank you for this message today. Thank you for the joy that you give us. Help us all to tap into that in a more real way. Help us all to become more cross-eyed. ask your Holy Spirit to come now. Flow in and through us in a very tangible way. I pray over all of you weeks, that God will use you in a mighty way in whatever you choose to put your hand to. And I pray now, may the Lord bless you and protect you. May the Lord smile on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord show you his favor and give you his peace. In Jesus' name.